to the right honourable lords of His Majesty's most honourable Privy Council. Haste, haste, post-haste. Plymouth, the 18th of April, 8 in the eve. Thomas Seeley, Mayor. May it please your honours to be advertised that this day I have heard of certain Turks, Moors and Dutchmen of Sally and Barbary, which lie on our coasts, spoiling divers such as they are able to master, as by the examination of one William Knight may appear, whose report I am induced the rather to believe, because two fisher-boats mentioned in his examination were very lately found floating on the seas, having neither man nor tackle in them. I am also credibly informed that there are some thirty sail of ships at Sally now preparing to come for the coasts of England in the beginning of the summer, and if there be not speedy course taken to prevent it, they would do much mischief. Hereof I thought it my duty to inform your honours, and so I rest. Your honours, in all duty bounden, Thomas Seeley, Mayor, Plymouth, the 18th day of April, 1625. There are only two or three human stories, and they go on repeating themselves as fiercely as if they have never happened before, like larks that have been singing the same five notes for thousands of years. I had scribbled this down in a notebook after reading it in a novel the night before I was due to meet Michael, and was looking forward to slipping it into our conversation at dinner, despite knowing his likely reaction. Negative. Dismissive. He was always sceptical about anything that could even vaguely be termed romantic. He was a lecturer in European literature, to which he presented an uncompromising post-structuralist stance, as if books were just meat for the butcher's block, requiring merely flensing and scrutiny. He found my thinking on the subject of fiction both emotional and unrigorous, which meant that at the start of our relationship we had the most furious arguments, which would hurt me so personally as to bring me to the edge of tears. But now, seven years in, we were able to bait each other cheerfully. Anyway, it made a change from discussing, or avoiding, the subject of Anna, or the future. I dressed with particular care for dinner, a devore silk blouse, a tailored black skirt that skimmed the knees, stockings, Michael was predictably male in his preferences, a pair of suede ankle-strap shoes in which I could just about manage the half-mile to the restaurant and back, and my favourite hand-embroidered shawl, bursts of bright pansies worked on a ground of fine black cashmere. I've always said you have to be an optimist to be a good embroiderer. A large piece, like the shawl, can take six months to a year of inspired and dedicated work. Determination, too, a dogged spirit like that of a mountaineer, taking one measured step at a time. You may think I exaggerate the difficulties. A bit of cloth, a needle and thread, how hard can it be? But once you've laid out a small fortune on cashmere and another on the silks, or there's a tight deadline for some nervous girl's wedding or an exhibition, and you have not only to design and plan, but to stitch a million stitches, I can tell you the pressure is palpable. We were meeting at Anoteca Turi, a smart Tuscan restaurant that we usually reserved for celebrations. There were no birthdays looming, no publications or promotions that I knew of. The latter would, in any case, be hard for me to achieve, since I ran my own business, 
and since even the word business was something of a stretch for my one-woman enterprise, a tiny crafts shop in the Seven Dials. The crafts shop was more of an indulgence than a money-making concern. I hadn't allowed myself to dwell on the special reason he had suggested Anotaker. It was an expensive place, not somewhere you would choose on a whim, not on the salary of a part-time lecturer, supplemented by desultory book-dealing, not if you were, like Michael, careful with your money. I arrived early. Michael was late. They do say relationships are usually weighted in favour of one party, and I reckoned I was carrying seventy percent of ours. At last he burst through the revolving door with his hair in disarray, shrugged his coat off impatiently, transferring briefcase and black carrier bag from hand to hand as he wrestled his way out of the sleeves, and kissed me swiftly on the cheek. Sorry I'm late. Let's order, shall we? I have to be home by eleven. Yes, I know. I suppressed a sigh. The waiter took our order, and Michael reached across the table and rested his hand on mine, imprisoning it against the white linen. At once, the familiar burst of sexual electricity charged up my arm, sending shock waves through me. His gaze was solemn, so solemn that I wanted a laugh. I think, he said carefully, his gaze resting on a point about two inches to the left of me. We should stop seeing each other, for a while at least. So much for discussing larks. The laugh that had been building up burst out of me, discordant and crazy sounding. I was aware of people staring. What? You're still young, he said. If we stop this now, you can find someone else, settle down, have a family. Michael hated the very idea of children. That he would wish them on me was confirmation of the distance he wanted to put between us. None of us are young any more, I retorted. Least of all you. His hand went unconsciously to his forehead. He was losing his hair and was vain enough to care about it. The waiter brought food. We ate it in silence, or rather, Michael ate in silence. I mainly pushed my crab and linguine around my plate and drank a lot of wine.'